Let's pray together. Lord, would you please enlighten our minds and soften our hearts as we consider Psalm 2. Help us be wise by submitting to you and to your enthroned Son. Amen. About a year ago, I reread J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. How many of you have, have read those books? Not enough of you. All right. Um, this time through, I listened to Andy Serkis read the audiobook. He really performs it. He's the actor Gollum in the, the movies. Uh, one of the few things the movies got right. And uh, he, he's just phenomenal. So I, I really enjoyed it. But it's not the first time I've, I've read the books. The first time was, I think, in seventh grade. And the movies didn't come out till I was finished with college. So I didn't know what was going to happen when I read the books the first time. So I'm just reading through. It's a riveting story. I'm focused on you know, who are the characters, what's going to happen, what I think is going to happen, uh, what happened. And then Tolkien has a lot of details uh, that you kind of forget and remember every time you read it. So there's lots, lots to recover there. But in the main, after you've read it once, the next time isn't the same as the first time because you already know the gist who the main characters are, and what happens. Do you think that ruins the second reading or the seventh reading? I don't know what reading I'm on now. Do you think it, it ruins it? I'm seeing people shake their heads. I, I agree with you if you're shaking your head no. I think that your, the, the next readings are actually better. If it's a good story, that the subsequent readings are better because they're enriched. They allow you to make connections that you couldn't see before. So the first time through, you don't know how this relates to the end of the story or, or whatever comes in between, but your second and tenth time through, you're able to make those connections. If the author wrote the story well, if the author planned it out well, you're able to make connections thematically that you can't make your first time through. You see how this might relate to Bible reading? Okay, that's where I'm going with this. Uh, it's especially relevant when we're talking about, say, a song that King David wrote. So it's good to imagine what did King David intend to communicate when he wrote this psalm and not having any of the later revelation in the Bible. So we talk about the Bible being progressively revealed. God reveals the Bible in stages. He didn't airdrop the Bible at one time. It came in periods over thousands of years. So when, when David wrote Psalm 2, there was a lot of the Bible that didn't exist. So it's, it's really interesting to think, what did God's people understand David to be communicating when they received Psalm 2, not having the rest of the Bible? That's interesting to think about. Uh, and we're going to do some of that in this sermon. But one of the things I'm going to argue throughout the sermon is if, if we stop there, we're not doing what Christians should do. So I, I'm an academic. I've got lots of friends who are in the academic world teaching Old Testament. And it's really common among Old Testament professors to view their job as to discover the pristine meaning of an Old Testament passage apart from anything else and anything later. Like, you've got to bracket out whatever comes later. And the 
pristine view is what did it mean just at that time with nothing else coming after it? And I think that's an interesting thought experiment, and it's worth doing. We're going to do it in a moment. But, but today, when we have the whole Bible, I think it's, it's not just responsible, it's necessary for Christians to read the whole Bible with Christian eyes, meaning we know the whole story, it all fits together, and we can see connections that not everyone would have seen then. So some of you might be getting suspicious, like I'm going to smuggle in meaning into the text. That's not, not the plan. I want to see what's there. And God authored this psalm, so I want to see what's there. Um, I have some slides I'm going to show you throughout. The red doesn't come through in very well. That's what I wanted you to actually see, see best here. <laughs> so uh, the, all that to say is Acts 4 says that David wrote Psalm 2. So I wanted to say that up front. David is the author of, of Psalm 2. And what I'd like us to do is read through Psalm 2 twice. The first time is to read it in its historical cultural context. So it's kind of, what did King David intend to communicate through this psalm? So take one pass through. And then we're going to take a second pass after that and read it in its whole Bible context with Christian eyes. And, and we'll look at how the New Testament quotes and uses Psalm 2 to, to help us uh, make, make those connections. So let's read through it twice. First, in its historical cultural context. I'm not going to announce the main idea yet. I want, to inst I want us to discover it inductively as we, we consider the psalm, but I'll just note this, that this psalm has a structure to it. It's poetry. Uh, do you, in, your, in your Bibles, do you see white space around blocks of the psalm? So what that, that's not in the Hebrew text. That's a way that translators are formatting it to kind of indicate their thought units. There are four of them, and in poetry we call these stanzas. So they're in three verse units. So stanza one is verses one to three, and then stanza two, verses four to six, stanza three, seven to nine, and stanza four, ten to twelve. I'll be referring throughout the sermon to stanza one, two, three, and four. That's what I'm talking about. And David is the author of the whole thing, and he, in stanza one, quotes the rebellious nations, and in stanza two, he quotes the Lord, and in stanza three, quotes the Lord again, and stanza four, is all David. All right, let's, let's jump in. Let's read the first stanza. Why do the nations rage? The word rage has the idea of conspire or rebel. Why are they rebelling? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? Why are they devising plots that are going to fail? The kings of the earth set themselves. That phrase, set themselves, means they're preparing for battle. They're rebels they're setting themselves to rebel, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and notice the quotation marks around verse 3. He's quoting these rebellious nations. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And that word there refers to the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords or shackles from us. That's stanza one. Here's what I think is the main idea of this stanza. Vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Again, the historical cultural context for this psalm is King David ruling the nation of Israel at a time when the surrounding Gentile nations were vassal nations. They're subject to Israel. 
They're part of the Israelite empire. And verse 1 asks a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question has the force of a statement, a proposition. So here's the, the statement that, that this uh, is, is getting at. It's futile for pagan nations to rage against the Lord. It's futile for the pagans to plan how to rebel against the Lord. Why do they even bother doing this? It's futile. And that word plot is the same word. It translates the same word that Psalm 1 renders. Uh, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in account. Uh, his law is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, on his law, he meditates day and night. That's a word, meditates. On his law, he meditates day and night. Meditates, plot, same Hebrew word. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? What's going on there? What's the connection? I think the connection is this word means to be consumingly preoccupied with something. So we should be consumingly preoccupied with God's words. But what's happening among these rebels? They're consumingly preoccupied with rebelling against God. It's the opposite of what we should be meditating on. Verses 2 and 3 then depict these pagan rulers planning to rebel against the Lord and against his anointed one, and it's, this is vain. Now, that title, his anointed, the last line of verse 2, that's a common way that the Bible refers to Israel's king. The reason is that the prophet Samuel anointed Israel's first kings, and, they, and such kings were called anointed. So he, he anoints Saul in 1 Samuel 10, and he anointed David in 1 Samuel 16. So the anointed is the king. So again, the main idea of this stanza is that vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Now let's read stanza two. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And that word sits, the idea is sits enthroned. Enthroned. The NIV, CSB, and Net Bible all translated that way. Sits enthroned. The Lord holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. He ridicules them. He taunts them. Then he will speak to or rebuke them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and now he's quoting the Lord, as for me, I have set, that word means installed, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here's the main idea of stanza two. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. So this stanza is describing how the Lord responds to these human rulers who are rebelling against him. So first, the Lord laughs. Very first line, he laughs. This is not laughing like the way you laugh at a funny joke. This is taunting. So the human rulers are rebelling against God Almighty, and as John Calvin might say, good luck with that. Uh, the Lord mocks human rulers who think they can overthrow him. He taunts them. He, his laughter is derisive. And two other Psalms use this kind of language. Psalm 37 says, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And Psalm 59 says, You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Verse 5 then responds, uh, the Lord responds in his wrath and in his fury. He terrifies them. There are severe consequences when you rebel against the Lord. 
and, and verse 6 is emphasizing that God has installed his king, his anointed one, on Zion. Zion refers to Jerusalem. That's the capital of God's kingdom on earth. So why is it such a big deal to rebel against the king? Because God himself installed that king. And to rebel against the king is to rebel against God Almighty. So human rulers who rebel against the Davidic king are rebelling against God Almighty. Main, again, main idea of the stanza, Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. Now let's read stanza three. I will tell of or announce the decree. I'll pro proclaim the decree. The Lord said to me, and the rest of the stanza is quoting the Lord. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That third line, today I have begotten you, might read differently in your Bible. If you're reading the NIV or CSB or Net Bible or NLT, it says this, today I have become your father. So which is it? Today I have begotten you or today I have become your father? And the answer is they both mean the same thing. They're both good. All right? Today I have become your father. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, or the ends of the land, your possession. You shall break them with a rod or a scepter of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, like, like clay pots, like pottery. So here's the main idea of this stanza. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. So this stanza is David quoting what the Lord said to him at his coronation. Uh, and it connects to what God promised King David in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 records a really important part of the Bible's storyline. It's when God makes a promise to David, and today we refer to that as the Davidic covenant. Heard that term? This means God's special promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Here's part of what he says. God speaking to David. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 16. So verse 7, when it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, that's using that language from 2 Samuel 7. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, God refers to his covenant people as a whole as his son. I think Hosea 11, out of Egypt I've called my son. Uh, King David is God's son because he represents and embodies God's people. Same thing in Psalm 89, 27. So this, this begetting language Today I have begotten you. That's a metaphor. This divine adoption officially took place for a Davidic king when he became the king at his coronation. So when an Israelite became Israel's king, he became God's son in this 2 Samuel 7 sense, or this Psalm 2, 7 sense. And then in verses 8 and 9, the Lord promises to King David that he will own the rebellious nations, will be your heritage and your possession, and not just own them, he'll smash them, he'll break them, he'll dash them. The rebellious nations have as much a chance at defeating the Lord as fragile pottery has at defeating an iron rod. 
So, main idea of stanza three, the Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. Now let's read stanza four. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. Submit to correction, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with reverence, with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son. Submit to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. It can flare up in a moment. It may ignite at any moment. Blessed, happy are all who take refuge in Him. So here's the main idea of stanza four. Therefore, that's an important word, therefore rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to His enthroned Son. Rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to His enthroned Son. The first two words, now therefore, indicate that stanza four, the final stanza, is an inference of everything before it. So because stanzas one, two, and three are true, stanza four logically follows. That's why we have the word therefore at the beginning. And this expresses, I think, this this stanza expresses the main idea of the whole psalm, which is submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. That's, I think, also the title of the sermon. Submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. That's the main idea of the psalm. And verse 10 is a warning. Be warned. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Don't be foolish, rulers. Don't rebel against the Lord's king, rulers. So a ruler during the days of King David would heed this warning by regularly paying tribute, by not rebelling against King David. And then verse 11 tells rulers what to do instead of rebelling. Serve the Lord and rejoice and do it with fear and trembling because the Lord's king is not someone to mess with. He deserves your respect. Kiss the son. Uh, when I was working through this psalm with my, my family, I have uh, four girls, 14, 11, 10, and 5. When we read this line, kiss the son, their eyebrows went up. And I had to explain, this is not romantic. This is a special kind of kissing in the Bible uh, that indicates you're paying homage to someone really important. And you see this in 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Kings 19. idea is submit to him, obey him, follow him, lay down your arms of rebellion. Otherwise, he'll be angry and you'll perish in the way. And then the, the final line of Psalm 2 bookends the first line of Psalm 1. That's why Jake read Psalms 1 and 2 together to start this sermon. These psalms go together. They're the introduction to all 150 psalms. There are lots and lots of ways that they connect. Uh, I mentioned earlier that connection about meditating and plotting. That's one of the connections. There are many others. And this is kind of the the big circle that connects them. The very first line of Psalm 1 is, Blessed is the man who walks not in the council, etc. And the very last line of Psalm 2 is, Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. It, is, it connects the psalms together. So that's, that's what Psalm 2 means, I think, in its historical cultural context. Vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. And finally, therefore, 
rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. So that, I think, is Psalm 2 in its historical, cultural context. Now, I'd like to take a second pass through the psalm and just back up with a wide-angle lens and read it with Christian eyes in its whole Bible context. And just remember that Psalm 2 is what is called a royal psalm. A royal psalm applies not only to King David, but to every Davidic king. And who is the ultimate Davidic king? It's Jesus. It's King Jesus. He is the ultimate Davidic king. You can see this uh, in Matthew 1.1. The very opening line of the New Testament is connecting Jesus with his being a son of David. He's a Davidic king. And the Lord would give to Jesus the throne of his father David, Luke 1.32. Now, each Davidic king became God's son at his coronation. And Jesus is the supreme son, Hebrews 1.5. And he'll conquer all his enemies under his feet. So let's read Psalm 2 one more time, this time in its whole, whole Bible context. We'll start with stanza 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, we already saw that the main idea is that vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Here's the main idea when we read this with Christian eyes. Rebelling against the Lord and his anointed king, capital K, Jesus the Messiah, is futile. All right. Look at the, the last line of verse 2. We see the word anointed. Does your Bible have a capital A or a lowercase a? If you're using the ESV, it says capital A, right? Some of you have one that has a lowercase a? Are you like, are you ESV only? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. Um, so it's, it's actually pretty common for translations to have a lowercase a here. What's going on? So this is one of those cases where translating the Bible is really hard. So when you're translating from one language to another, there, there are aspects of the, the language you're translating into that you don't have to, it's not clear in the, the original language. Capital letters is one of them. So when there's a lowercase a, what the translators are doing, they're interpreting this as saying, this refers to a king, like King David. And when translators capitalize that a, what they're saying is, this ultimately refers to King Jesus. They're both right. There's not one right way to translate this one, I think. Uh, when you do the capital A, it kind of makes it hard to understand that it could refer to all the other Davidic kings as well. It sounds like it's only about King Jesus. Uh, but I'd say this is supremely, ultimately about King Jesus. So I'm, I'm happy with, with either way. That's also, if you look at verse 6, same thing with the word king, capital K or lowercase k. And, and then verses 7 and 12, the word son, lowercase s or capital S. The ESV has capitalized all of them to, to show this is ultimately culminating in, in King Jesus. Now, this next slide might scare you. Just be warned. It's going to have some fun-looking words on it. I'll explain. All right, this, this is a Hebrew word, and this is a Greek word. So stay with me here. Don't glaze over. This word here 
it sounds like this, Mashiach. To, if you transliterate that word, to, to, to transliterate means to write a letter or word using the closest corresponding letters of a different alphabet or script. If you transliterate that word, you get something like Messiah. Like, you know a transliter- transliterated word, uh, the word amen, or hallelujah. Hallelujah, that's a Hebrew word. And we just kind of transcribe it, transliterate it into our language, and we get hallelujah. And that means praise the Lord. So the transliteration is hallelujah. The translation is praise the Lord. Y'all with me? Okay. So Mashiach, transliterated is Messiah. The translation is anointed. That's why Psalm 2, 2 has the word anointed. At the translation. What's interesting is when the Greek uh, New Testament translates the Hebrew Bible, it translates Mashiach with Christos. And you, you know that term. So the transliteration is Christ. The translation is anointed or Messiah. So when we say Jesus the Christ, it's not like saying um, Dan Miller. Not at all. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's more like saying, Dan, the band. Dan, the pastor. That's better. That's a better title. Yeah, Dan, the pastor. <laughs> uh, so the Christ is not a personal name. It's a title. The anointed. The Messiah. Uh, now Christians in Acts 4, this is so interesting, they are, are gathered together and they're praying, and they apply the first stanza of Psalm 2 to the death of Christ. The death of Christ and, and, and the persecution of early Christians. So they think that, I'll back up here, when it says, uh, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, they apply that to Herod, King Herod. They apply that to Pontius Pilate and other rebels. Let me show this to you. I couldn't fit it all on the screen, so I'm going to start with Acts 4.23 and then get to what's on the screen. So when Peter and John were released, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, and here's what's on the screen, this whole thing is a prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and this next part is Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3. And it's in their prayer. Another good reason to quote the Bible in your prayer. Here's a pattern. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And now here's an inspired commentary on Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus... So that's the anointed. Jesus, whom you anointed. So who are these people who are gathered together? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So these Gentiles raging, the peoples plotting in vain, these kings of the earth setting themselves to rebel, gathered to, to, to... protest, to rebel against the Lord. Who are they? It's the people who murdered Jesus. Now you might be thinking, 
where is that in Psalm 2? We just read it, and I didn't even make that connection until I saw what happened in Acts 4. Is that like pulling a rabbit out of the hat? Like, how did how'd they get from there to there? What's going on? So let me just comment briefly about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Sometimes people will accuse the New Testament authors of irresponsibly handling the Old Testament, making stuff up, stretching things, uh, adding fuller, deeper meanings that aren't there in the original. And we, and okay, if those are God-breathed stretches, only they can do that. We can't do that. Uh, we're, we don't preach God-breathed sermons. We don't write God-breathed texts. They, the, the writers of the New Testament did. What they did is not something we can reproduce or copy. That's a, that's a common argument, which I find very unpersuasive. I think that the New Testament writers are our guides in how to read the Old Testament. So here's, here's, here's part of the debate. We're, we are evangelical Christians who believe that the Bible is God-breathed. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, all graphe, is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. That means that God wrote the Bible. So I thought humans wrote the Bible. Yeah, humans wrote the Bible. Well, which is it? Yes. How does that work? I don't know exactly. Uh, theologians get real intricate with this. I made Jake read a very long book about this last year uh, by, uh, by Feinberg, I think. Yeah. Like, and, and you read it too over there, Ethan. There's a lot to talk about here. But here's a gist. Uh, the Bible is a, a divine human book. God wrote it, humans wrote it. And, and I'd, you'd say, well, is it possible that when God wrote a passage of the Old Testament, he intended more than the human author intended? Or maybe you could say this way, he was aware of more of the implications than the human author was aware. He was aware of more of the connections to later revelation and history than the, the original human author was aware yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable way to say it. I'd say it like this. God may intend more, but not less than what the human authors intended to communicate. So if King David were to see this passage on the screen, Acts 4, would he respond by saying, what in the world, Luke? He, he, he wrote Acts. Luke, that is totally not what I was intending to write. You ripped my words out of context. How dare you? Okay, no, no. It'd be more like this, and I'm, I'm guessing, so this is not a God-breathed interpretation, but maybe something like this. Wow. I, I knew when I was writing that psalm that it was talking about all of the Davidic kings and that it would culminate in the ultimate Davidic king, but I didn't know how that would happen and how it would happen with with this person named Jesus, and that Herod and Pontius Pilate would be the ones specifically who were rebelling. I didn't, I didn't know all that. And now that I see it, this is beautiful. It's totally in line with what I was writing. I just wasn't aware of all these details. I think something like that is more likely. So what, what the New Testament doing, is doing is not contradicting the Old Testament. It's making connections that are visible only as God reveals them in time. And, and looking back retrospectively, we see it and marvel at God for designing it all so brilliantly. Praise God for designing it that way. There's so much more to talk about, about old and new. I'll let Pastor Dan, the man, clean up my mess. All right. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. So when we read uh, Psalm 2, stanza 1 with Christian eyes, I think the message is that rebelling against the Lord and his anointed king, capital K, King Jesus, is futile. Now let's read the second stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here's what we saw already is the main idea of stanza two. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king, lowercase k, he has installed. Here's the main idea when we read it with Christian eyes. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king, capital K, he has installed, namely Jesus, the Messiah. So verse 6, the uh, Lord says, I've set my king on Zion. Does that sound like a passage in Hebrews 12? So Hebrews 12, 22 and 24 connects Jesus with Mount Zion, coming to Jesus in faith and coming to Mount Zion. Here's, here's the, the text. You have come to Mount Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Beautiful. And the first, the first two stanzas of Psalm 2, I think, are remarkably encouraging for us today. We might feel discouraged that prominent rulers internationally and prominent influencers in our culture are rebelling against the Lord. It's hard not to see this if, you, if you're following the news. Rebelling against God's design for men and women. Rebelling against God's design for sex between only a husband and wife. Rebelling against God's design for a mother's womb to be a safe place for a defenseless developing baby. Rebelling against God's design for human authority and marriage and the family and the church and society. Rebelling against the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Rebelling against Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And I could go on and on and on. And there's just so many specific ways that prominent people today in our culture are rebelling against the Lord and King Jesus. And you might be, be tempted to respond by being discouraged. Like, like, look, it feels like we're losing. It feels like God's enemies are gaining it can be a discouraging thought. Well, look at Psalm 2. What is, it, what is the Lord's posture towards these rebels? He laughs. He laughs. He is not worried. He is not losing. We can trust this supremely, this supremely, supremely sovereign Lord. He has it all under his control. And it might seem to us like the final outcome is hanging in the balance. But we know the final score. We know the end of the story. God wins, and God will have the last laugh. To be with King Jesus is to be on the right side of history. It is. So take comfort that even though people are currently contesting that Jesus is king, in the end, King Jesus will conquer all rebels and be the uncontested king. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the main idea of stanza two, when we read it with Christian eyes, is that the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed, Jesus the Messiah. Now let's read stanza three. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we already saw that the main idea of stanza three is the Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. In the whole Bible context, it's the Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection and will give King Jesus victory over rebels. And some of you are uncomfortable with what I just said. You're like, what? I said the Lord became, king, became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection. And that sounds like heresy. So let me just clarify something. God the Father is eternally the Father, and God the Son is eternally the Son. Amen. That's true. And in the sense that Psalm 2 is using sonship language, it's right to say that there's a time when the Lord became the Messiah's Father. So this might help. I'm going to quote a theologian. His name is J. V. Fesco. He teaches theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He's talking about Psalm 2 right here and says, this is royal ascension language, ascending to the throne. What is said of a person who enters the royal palace as an ordinary man and leaves as an ascended and inaugurated king? We might say the same thing of the inauguration of our own president. Before the ceremony, he's a regular citizen. But after his inauguration on the Capitol steps, he's president of the United States. In this sense, the nation begets a president. And this is how we must understand David's statement in Psalm 2.7. Paul identifies the resurrection as Jesus' royal enthronement. So let me, let me show this to you. The New Testament cites verse 7 three times. And the first time is most significant here. I'm going to have all three on the screen. Just look at the top one. Acts 13, 32, and 33. This is Paul preaching at Antioch and Pisidia. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So pause right there. He is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. How does he support that? How does he explain that? As also it's written in the second psalm, boom, he quotes Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember, in its historical cultural context, that's referring to when any Israelite king became the king, the Davidic king. Today I have begotten you. You're my son. Ultimately, it refers to Jesus. So that today refers specifically to the day that God raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection. That's why I, I, I said... Uh, back here, the Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection. I'm basing this off of how Acts 13 refers to Psalm 2, 7. 
I think it's also why Paul says in Romans 4, excuse me, it's, it's Romans 1, 4, that Jesus is resurrected, exalted, and he uses a new title. He's the Son of God in power. That's a new title that comes after the resurrection with the ascension. That is now how we refer to King Jesus, the Son of God in power. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So when he's exalted as king. Let me show you the other two, the other two times the New Testament quotes Psalm 2-7, both in Hebrews, Hebrews 1-5 and then chapter 5. So the context of Hebrews 1-5 here. Uh, the, the author's arguing that Jesus is better than angels. And, and the author writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? That's Psalm 2.7. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's 2 Samuel 7.14 again. Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David. He ultimately fulfills what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. And here's the, the third, it's Hebrews 5. So, uh, if you back up to the end of chapter 4, the author is saying that Jesus is the great high priest who's better than every other high priest chosen from among men. And then here he says, no one takes this honor, that honor of being high priest for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the ultimate priest. There's so much more I'd like to say about these old and new connections, but there's only so much you can do in one sermon. So I'll just wrap it up with stanza three and say, with Christian eyes, the main idea is the Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection and will give King Jesus victory over rebels. Let's read the next stanza. Oh, 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 I can't yet. I can't. I got to say something about verses eight and nine. Hang with me, if I, if I may. Verses eight, I just did verse seven. Forgot, I gotta talk about these two. These are awesome. Okay, um, I'll do this quickly. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. Does that sound like Romans 1, verse 5, maybe? Where Paul says, uh, through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Love that connection. And then the next line, the ends of the earth, that sounds so much like Acts 1 where you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and to the ends of the earth. And then this bit, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I'll do this one quickly. Um, I'll just say that King Jesus will break and smash the rebellious nations. Uh, the book of Revelation cites this three times, uh, Revelation 2, 12, and 19, to show that Christ will rule or shepherd the nations with a, an iron rod. There's so much here in Psalm 2. I feel like I'm just on a jet ski going, but there's, there's a lot more. Okay, we're going to have to go to stanza 4. Uh, stanza 4, verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We already saw the main idea is, therefore, rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. 
with Christian eyes, I'd say it this way. Therefore, you would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son, King Jesus. Again, those first two words, now therefore, indicate that this, this final stanza is an inference of the first three stanzas. This is expressing the main idea of the text. Submit to the Lord and to his son, his enthroned son. Now, you notice that I said, therefore, you would be wise. The text says, kings, rulers. So I'm making some kind of transition from this, this psalm explicitly is addressing rulers, kings, and I'm addressing it to you. I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing none of you are a king or a ruler over a geopolitical nation in this world. Am I correct? Okay, all right. So in what sense can I be saying you like this? So here's, here's my logic. These psalms are for God's people, not just for pagan rulers. And if pagan rulers should submit to the Lord and the Messiah, how much more should the rest of us? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. You know, if, if I could pick up this pulpit, I think I could pick up this plastic thing, right? Greater to the lesser. If this is true for these rulers, how much more is it true for you? That, that, that's my logic. So I'm summarizing this main idea with you. You would be wise to submit to the Lord and to King Jesus. So don't rebel against the Lord and his enthroned son. Instead, worship the Lord and his enthroned son. Verse 11 captures how we should respect and revere the Lord. We should serve him and rejoice, but do it with fear and trembling, not flippantly, not lightheartedly. Kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, submit to the Son. As Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Follow King Jesus gladly. And if you don't, you'll perish in the way. You'll suffer his righteous wrath. So if you're not following King Jesus, if you're here today and you're not one of his glad subjects, you're not submitting to King Jesus then kiss the Son. Submit to King Jesus. And for the rest of us, if we are following King Jesus, we also should kiss the Son. Submit to King Jesus. Don't be willing to obey King Jesus in every area but one or two. Don't hold anything back. Boldly and courageously follow King Jesus. And this last line of the psalm is so beautiful. Blessed are all who take refuge in King Jesus. Refuge from God's wrath, refuge from God's enemies. Why would we take refuge in King Jesus? It's because King Jesus is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our stronghold, our shield, our dwelling place, our deliverer. And everyone who takes refuge in King Jesus is blessed, is happy. We try to take refuge as sinners in just about everything else possible than King Jesus. We believe these lies that we'll be happy if we seek refuge elsewhere, but none of it's true. None of it satisfies. Blessed are those who take refuge solely, exclusively in King Jesus. And we most glorify King Jesus when he most satisfies us. So we have just read Psalm 2 
twice, first in its historical cultural context and then in its whole Bible context. Just review quickly. Stanza 1, we saw that vassal nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. And in its whole Bible context, that means that rebelling against the anointed king Jesus is futile. In stanza 2, the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. With the whole Bible context, that means the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and King Jesus. Stanza 3, the Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. With the whole Bible context, the Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection and he'll give King Jesus ultimate victory over rebels. And then finally, conclusion, therefore rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and his enthroned son. For us, we would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son, capital S, King Jesus. So I'll just conclude by asking you, are you plotting to rebel against the Lord and his anointed? And you think, uh, I don't think so. Well, think of it this way. Are you bucking against specific commands from God? That's a way of, of plotting against the Lord. Are you reluctant to serve the Lord? Are you reluctant to submit to King Jesus? Uh, perhaps you're bucking against God's design for men and women. Perhaps you're wavering on God's commands regarding sexuality when the, the current of the culture is taking you the opposite direction from what God has designed and makes you feel backwards and like you're on the wrong side of history. Let the truth of Psalm 2 just land on you with this fresh power and freedom to be on the side of King Jesus is to be on the right side of history. So obey King Jesus, trust him, follow him. Let Psalm 2 free you to follow Jesus without shame. Follow him gladly. So let this motivate you to pray for those who are living in rebellion against King Jesus. Let's pray for our lost family, our lost friends and neighbors. Let's be eager to show them the beauty of knowing and following King Jesus. It's just not worth it to fight against King Jesus. One man said, it's, your arms are too short to box with God. <laughs> you'll, you'll lose every time. You can't win in a fight against God Almighty. You'd be foolish to keep rebelling. And you'd be wise to submit. And you'd be blessed if you do. So let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that it's futile to rebel against you and against King Jesus, the Messiah. Would you please help us to be wise by submitting to you and to your enthroned Son? Amen.